Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a Viscount amidst a plate full of custard creams. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be your pilot today, along with James Winter navigating us through the world of food. Sorry, I'm going to pause, just pause there a minute. Okay, on today's show, you're about to introduce it, uh, lots of things, but there is a guest from America. Just prior to this, we were talking about the cultural separation of our two languages. And, and for, for the benefit of the guest we have yet to introduce, Jay was using two very, very English biscuits from a biscuit tin. <laughs> as his points of reference which I imagine whistled straight over <laughs> most head. of our audience's head apart from the ones in Britain everybody and anyone who's over a certain age went out a bloody Viscount is anyway but you know we're, we're speaking to a very select select crew here um, as I was saying <laughs> on today's show it's time to put in your finest teeth raise your voice significantly and salute the flag as we are heading across the pond to the mighty US of A taking a trip to discover the fascinating and unexpected roots of food in America and delve deep into the food history of our closest of friends and allies and how they came to eat what they eat. Plus, we're going to be exploring some of the latest discoveries in food science, including a rather unexpected source of protein for all you weightlifters out there. So grab your guns and baseball caps and join us for a journey to the centre of American food. Hello, I James. Do like the intro so Hello, hello. They're getting longer, aren't they? The intros. <laughs> oh, it's going to be stop for a chat about Viscount halfway through them. <laughs> okay, that's true. I did interrupt. No, it's a good. Yes, it's a good point. I will. I will just some podcasts just go hello and crack on with it. I end up wittering on for half an hour about what the hell's going on in it. So, um, mm. yes, no, it's going to be interesting. Good. This isn't it. We're heading across the pond. Fascinating. It's going to be very fascinating. Exciting. It's an area that I I find deeply interesting. I know very little about. I have a sort of a waffer thin sort of understanding of, of, of the sort of the cuisine and its history and its its development. So I'm looking forward to this immensely. And and, and our guest uh, works and runs one of the most remarkable living history. Uh, well, it's not, it's not, it's, it's a whole town's worth of living history, which is unlike anything I've ever mm. seen before, which we're going to be exploring in, in depth uh, when he comes on. But for that, James, Food news, food history. Da, 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 da. You need a jingle. We do need a jingle. News. We'll just record that. We'll just clip that up. <laughs> so, a couple of things to share with you. I, I know you're obviously interested in your giant pandas, but more interestingly than that, something I do know you're interested in is your gut bacteria. Oh, very much so. Yes, yeah. and this is something we obviously we've we've touched on many times with Heston on the podcast. There's been some new findings about this about the giant panda, and what they've found is basically the bear's gut microbiome uh, completely shifts during a certain time of the year. So most of the year they eat uh, bamboo leaves, which are not particularly mm. fibrous, and a certain part of the year the roots come into uh, you know the time they can eat them, and its entire gut uh, bacteria shifts to make the food put more weight on them. So they significantly gain more weight during the period of time when they're eating these because their gut bacteria changes. And they know this because what they did was they took a fecal transfer transfer from the pandas during these two different periods and put it in a mouse or mice, many mice, and they tested them. And when it had this um, certain type of gut bacteria, the mice gained loads more fat from eating the same amount of food than they did the rest of the time, 
which isn't that remarkable. Yeah. My first thought listening to that, Jay, was was obviously just for sheer size differential between a panda and a mouse. So once yes. I realised they didn't transfer the entire <laughs> microbiome, just a small portion. Just a small amount. But it, it, chimed, it chimes with a lot of the findings that, that, that we're seeing is that, you know, our behaviour and our diets and our, then our moods and, and everything about us is heavily influenced by that enormous colony of little creatures living in our guts. And they've had very successful um they do fecal matter transfers i know this is quite grim if you're having just dinner eating the, the podcast tonight but kind of on humans right it's a very invasive yeah. last ditched treatment for people you know to change their metabolism you know if you're trying to lose weight fast it's one of the the things if you've got a very dysbiotic um gut flora then you know you can you can it's been used it is it is used as a treatment for humans so it doesn't surprise me that we're finding these kind of you know behavioral shifts across the animal kingdom i mean it is it's incredible as well the knowledge of it as well that that, as you've always talked about that gut brain to know when the certain time of the year or certain type of foods arrive it's it's better for you so we're going to put more weight on during this period of time is well there's there's lots of these symbiotic relationships with with bacteria across the animal kingdom there's a, there's a you know there's a wonderful story about a school i think it's for bobtail squid right that has a similar relationship with its bacteria where they they grow in population on its body and and, and change its coloring and its spectrum due to the chemicals they give out so it becomes invisible during the day and it can hunt but when the population gets too big they die out and it dies off and it's nighttime and and it goes on a daily cycle so it kind of they you know they, they they work together by the rhythm of their lives to form a union where they can both live in harmony together, where one one's behaviour benefits and influences the other in the same way. I mean, it's 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 just I mean, it's amazing. Animal Kingdom and and the Plant Kingdom are, are amazing for that, and it's it doesn't surprise me at all that you know we keep finding more and more examples of this. It's incredible, isn't it? It does feel like that area of science that in twenty years' time will be just everybody knows it, but now is just sort of breaking news and discoveries being made uh, <laughs> another piece of food news i know james is obviously clearly a very keen bodybuilder and weightlifter uh, and he's constantly constantly looking for protein sources um as we know uh we've been told insects are very good for protein but <laughs> so uh, there, there has been a study done on the uh, hoo-hoo grubs you know those big fat ones they always eat on um, on those shows when they're in the in oh yeah celebrity the Australian out outback that, type food that's the ones yeah um, yep. huge amounts of protein um, basically they have high fat but they uh, have massively high amounts of protein uh, from twenty six to thirty percent of protein which is which is quite remarkable and they're also uh, rich in essential minerals and all sorts of good things but they have figured out that. Um, <laughs> Compared to the same amount of beef, if you were a weightlifter looking for the same amount of protein, you would need to eat around 75 of these grubs each sitting, which I think probably even for weightlifters, yeah, who who are pretty disciplined. Unless you fried them, unless you fried them in breadcrumbs and then you people eat them all day long. Oh, we had that. Well, I've had had plenty of grubs and things fried up and they're (laughs) lovely. What was that? When we went to, oh, George McGavin. Uh, Fabulous. Wonderful. What's the word for an expert on insects? Entomologist, is it? Could be possibly if you say we'll, it with confidence we'll, we'll go just with move on <laughs> i bet it's not that but uh he was just delightful and hess and i went there and we ate all manner of garden insects and he just went out to the garden with us and got the um got the insects and fried them up and the best ones were the um mm. the little maggots you know the ones you go fishing with they oh were, yeah mealworms. mealworms well they've been part of yeah I lovely mean, yeah yeah i mean they crisp up nicely like a bit of puff rice yeah you know, really really nice that. the um yeah uh, ear, um uh earwigs not so nice <laughs> 
they weren't very I good. I can't imagine it was. No. And yeah. The, uh, yeah. So uh, anyway. Not woodlice either. They won't be there. <laughs> they don't, they don't. For anyone who is basically eating their dinner, we do apologise. This is a very strange uh, start to the podcast. But um, but for all the weightlifters out there ploughing into some beef, they're thinking, oh, thanks. This is in- this is informative yeah, and useful. <laughs> Back on the protein. Back on the protein. The price. Get on the yeah. get on the grubs. Uh, anyway, we'll we'll leave behind our grubs and giant pandas uh, because we need to re- meet our guest host for today and take another trip back in time. He is the master of historic foodways at Colonial Williamsburg, a remarkable living history museum, uh, where he operates two kitchens demonstrating 18th century cooking. And over the years, he's researched and tried 18th century brewing, butchering, chocolate making. Plus, he's explored in depth the unexpected origins of the Virginian and American food culture. We are delighted to welcome from America, Frank Clark. Hello, Frank. Welcome to the podcast. Good day, good day. Nice to see you all, or hear you all. Yeah, thanks for joining <laughs> us. Paint us a little picture of where you are and what time. It's almost beer time, about three in the <laughs> afternoon. So, And you look fabulous, Frank. So just so our listeners know, Frank is doled out full costume here. I came back immediately from work in my, my best colonial chef's outfit uh we don't have the striped pants and the hat yet but uh, uh we did it's amazing so it's, it's like a blue it's sort of a, a blue like velvet jacket with like the arms that thing where the arms aren't really attached they're sort of laced on and then you've got a huge yeah these, apron. these are very convenient because summertime of course in july you will want to remove the sleeves uh and and when especially if you're in a kitchen next to a fire uh because you you're not going to want that much heat so uh this this way i <laughs> as a poor tradesman can have the same waistcoat year round and in the summer time simply untie the sleeves and wear it as a small waistcoat and in the winter tie them on and be a little warm now frank you must paint a picture for uh, all of our listeners about where you are in the biggest sense colonial williamsburg tell us all about this because just looking at pictures it sounds and looks truly remarkable so please paint a picture for us who know nothing about it well colonial williamsburg is a, a, a really unique place in the sense that it is basically a whole town that has been reserved uh, restored or replaced uh from the 18th century and uh the, the museum actually starts in 1927 with the help of the rockefeller family uh john d rockefeller jr he's the one that that started it off and he basically goes out and buys these homes in secret and then uh, creates this plan uh, with the local minister to uh, recreate Williamsburg as it was in the capital days uh, in the 18th century. We were the capital of Virginia from 1699 to 1780. Uh, and so that's the period that we focus on uh, really right around the time of the revolution is our primary focus. Uh, but uh, that's the area that, that Rockefeller and, and the the initial museum wanted to recreate. And so we had 88 original structures that were already here in town. And then we've been ever since rebuilding the ones uh, that the Frenchman's map there shows us were here in the 18th century and archeology span tells us we're here in the period uh, to try and recreate the town exactly as it, as it was in the period, or at least in a, in a, in a modern friendly way. You know, and we, how many we, do you have now? How many buildings are there oh, if you had 88 when you started? Honestly, I don't know the total count, but I, I would say over 700 or seven to 800. Oh my. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's 
pretty, pretty good. Uh, we have over 300 acres uh, in the in the property in total, and and then the city has uh, numerous buildings. Now that is including things like smokehouses and uh, necessaries and uh, dairies and and other little dependency buildings. Some of them are, are quite small, uh, but but uh, in total, there's there's these houses and separate kitchens and uh, various other dependency buildings uh, to really recreate the town as as it was in the period. And then it's staffed by uh, people such as myself who recreate not only the trades of the period, but uh, give tours of places like the governor's palace and the others. And, th and that's kind of where we come in. We do, uh, our focus of course is food and we operate two kitchens as demonstrations for the public to see the processes of cooking and uh, the, the setup of, of kitchens and, and the various aspects of food in the period. Uh, and we're sort of at the top and at the bottom. Uh, we're at the Governor's Palace, which is certainly the finest kitchen in Virginia in the 18th century. And we're doing the cuisine of the very wealthy, uh, the, the French-influenced upper English uh, diet of the 18th century. Uh, and then we operate a kitchen at the Anderson Armory. The Armory, uh, unfortunately uh, for, for the English folks, uh, were, were repairing weapons to fight the British uh, during the revolution. Uh, and as part of your payment as a, as a worker there, uh, you would be uh, given a, a ration of food, uh, basically a pound of bread and a plate of some kind of stew. Uh, so that, that's sort of the baseline of, of 18th century food and, and probably how basically 70% of Virginia ate, 70 to 80 percent of them had a, a one-pot meal and a heavy whole grain bread, uh, free or enslaved, really. That's the diet of, of most Virginians. Uh, and it's going to get uh, uh, only the very wealthy, like the royal governor, where you're going to see the real, the fancy foods that were capable of the time and, and the rich. And I'm just going to pause here briefly because I'm really excited to tell you about a new sponsor we have on this podcast and one that we think would be a really valuable resource to everyone out there, basically, because I think we can all agree that as much as we talk about the gut health on this on this podcast and food and the wonderful memories and happiness it gives us, we've all started to think a little bit more about our mental health, especially over the past couple of years of rolling lockdowns and changes to our lives. Well, the good news is one of our sponsors is here to help make therapy easy for anybody because the podcast today is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Now, some people think you should wait until things get unbearable before you go to therapy, but this isn't true. It's a it's a tool to utilise before things get too bad. And we're also being taught that mental health shouldn't be a part of normal life, and that's absolutely wrong. We take care of our bodies in the gym, we eat great things, and you know we look after our nutrition. We should also be focusing our minds just as much. Now, BetterHelp is a customised online therapy service that's here to help. They offer video, phone and even live sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on the camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under just 48 hours. So why don't you give it a try? Over 2 million people have already used BetterHelp online therapy. And the good news is this podcast, as it's sponsored by BetterHelp, you get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash journey. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash journey and start getting your mental health into great condition. Right, 
Let's get back to America, shall we? Was there, was there a lot of very in, in terms of what people were sort of everyday people were were eating? Was it purely just for one pot every day? Was there a variation at all? Was there what, whatever? Well, certainly whatever goes a picture of what into a, the pot what plan is like. varying due to season. So that's the one mm-hmm. thing that that as modern folks we we have forgotten about uh, is often the seasonality of our food because we don't need to worry about it anymore. We can import food from all over the planet. We can uh, do uh, greenhouse growing and various other things that allow us to have basically uh, most foods year round. Uh, but in the 18th century, the rhythm of your diet is going to vary all through the year depending on what's in season, what's in value. Uh, available to you. So right now, for example, we have our tubers, our roots, our carrots, and cabbages, and potatoes, and turnips, and beets, and uh, kohlrabis, and, and all these things. Boxes of, of sand normally was a storage method for these root vegetables down in the cellar. And then we can pull those out through the winter and use those. We are also pulling on our pickles from last year, whenever something was in season, and this was everything, not just cucumbers, but asparagus, beans, carrots, mushrooms, you name it, they pickled it. Uh, and, and so we pull out those pickled items now to put something green out on the table because there's very little green in the garden. Although our winter is mild enough that we do still have cabbage and collard in the ground out in the gardens, and, and they'll get a little snow, the outer leaves will get a little uh, messy, but we'll get rid of all that. There are hundreds of leaves on a cabbage, so uh, no problem there. And and they'll still be good to cook with and, and work with, though. So we can let a few crops winter through. Uh, but, you know, it's really not going to be until March where we're going to start to see things like salads again. Uh, and peas and asparagus and other fresh greens will start to come in. Uh, and then we'll start to see things like strawberries. And then the summer will come along. And peaches and uh, the squash and the corn and the tomatoes and the other things that that start to mark the Virginia diet uh, will will really come in. Uh, And so, you know, all through the year, those things are ending up in your stew pot. So you're not eating the same stew every year, every day throughout the year, but it is Mm. stew nonetheless. Excuse me if my my history is incorrect here or or I make a misstep, but these... You know, the town is growing through incoming settlers from generally from Britain initially or, or from all over Europe in the end I don't know but you know are they bringing culinary ideas with them or are they absorbing things that are inherently there how is this food knowledge growing because I think I think the baseline is that the food you're describing would have been preferable and more more nutritious than the food in Britain at that time I think we were at a different stage of our history there's lots of turmoil over this side um, and probably people are the people that are coming are coming for a better life you're right about that. The studies have shown that the average American in the 18th century is up to a half an inch taller than the average uh, European in this time period. And it's because of our nutrition, uh, because of the, the wide availability of food. You think about the, the Chesapeake Bay in the 18th century. You've got people are regularly catching 12, 14, 15 foot sturgeon out of the bay. The oysters are everywhere and as Captain John Strith, uh, Smith described them, oysters the size of dinner plates. You know, maybe a little exaggeration there, but I have seen 18th century oyster shells our archaeologists have dug up that, that are that large, that are that are easily the size of, of, of your two hands in a circle of uh, shape there. So uh, we have recipes telling us to cut the oyster in four parts and grill it. 
can't do that with a modern oyster. Uh, so uh, there are, uh, you know, there's this abundance of that. We have the fowl that come through here, migrating twice a year uh, from winter and summer. Uh, the sky was blackened with them, as the early descriptions talk about. So it's just the availability of the food. Plus, we have three growing seasons here. So we can produce more in the gardens than they could in England as well. And, and so all those factors led to this increased, uh, I think, nutrition here in America. Um, and, and the other thing that that's sort of powering all this in, in terms of the recipes you were talking about is the cookbook. The 18th century mm. with movable type is the age that cookbooks really are starting to, to take off and become something that people could afford to include in their library. Uh, just in the city of London in the first 50 years of the 18th century, over 250 cookbooks were published. Uh, so you see this huge boom in, in production of, of recipes for people to, uh, to learn cooking from. Uh, of course, all the cookbooks in the 18th century basically expect you to already know how to cook because everyone yeah. does. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they say things like bake until done or make it as thick as hasty pudding because everyone knows how thick hasty pudding is, right? Uh, so, you know, these, these kinds of things that are uh, expecting a, a probably a much more knowledgeable audience than the average cookbook writer today will write for uh, in terms of cooking basic skills. Uh, but that's one of the ways that, that English culture gets here to Virginia in a big way. Most Virginians could not afford to hire English chefs come over like the royal governors could. Uh, in fact, the last two royal governors had an Englishman as his cook for Lord Bonnetot and a Frenchman, uh, the real height mm-hmm. of luxury in this period, as the cook for Lord Dunmore. And so um, most Virginians would never have tasted true French cuisine or uh, experienced that kind of a thing. Uh, they're eating stew and bread. Uh, but uh, the royal governor can afford to bring his, his cook and, and bring that French cuisine over. And it's that cuisine that kind of gets molded into uh, what becomes Virginia cuisine with the huge influence of Africans. Because the people doing the cooking in Virginia are African. We are very English in terms of immigration from the old world. There are a few Scots around, generally young Scottish men who worked as factors for tobacco houses and Scottish agents. The tobacco trade was pretty much tied up with by Scots. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the tobacco actually went to Glasgow uh, and then to the continent from Virginia. Uh, but um, there's everyone doing the cooking in these wealthy Virginia households are African or, or at least descended from Africans. And their food culture begins to mash into the climate. Uh, and then the plants that are already here that are native in Virginia that become part of the diet, the biggest, of course, being corn. Uh, and and then uh, you see others that, that work in as well. And, and so you see this influence from the natives here and their understanding of how to eat the, the natural produce of Virginia. You see these whole new a world of foods and plants brought in by the English and then prepared by the Africans. And and all of this sort of leads to what becomes Virginia cuisine. And, and, and that kind of goes a little beyond our time period. We really focus from 1740s uh, or 1770s up until the revolution. Uh, but um, the revolution has a profound effect on American food. We don't want to be English anymore. 
We are going oh, to embrace corn. We're going to embrace chocolate and coffee rather than drink English tea. We're going to uh, give up rum and start making our own bourbon whiskey from American corn. Uh, we're going to drink cider from American apples instead of English beer. Uh, and, and so we, we literally, in, in a matter of a few years, create this new American diet as a way of being patriotic uh, and also being able to have something to eat when you can't import anything anymore uh, from England, like all your other stuff has always come from. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it sort of forestarts starts this, this process of, of creating what becomes Virginia cuisine. I'm interested. You, you speak about the the African influence, but was that more powerful than the Native American influence, which was already there when obviously the settlers first got there, or was that almost completely ignored? What yeah, what influence yeah, did the native that, the, the original people of America have on it? That that's a really good question, and and I, I I hesitate to try and answer it because I don't feel like there's enough information about it uh, to, to really uh, be clear in it. Uh, what I can say is that I, I think there's some cross-pollination, pollinization going on more so between African and natives than there is between English and natives. Interesting. Uh, and, that makes and, sense, yeah. And, and there's a lot of situations, uh, especially maroon communities of enslaved people who have run away and, and are living in the wild, uh, who join uh, native tribes and, and live there. And, and that's where you see that real sort of cross-pollinization of, okay, something like the fruit persimmon. In Africa, they have a very similar fruit, the jackalberry, which is made into a beer. And so Virginians start to make beer from persimmons. Uh, it, it's very big in the African-American community, but it becomes a staple of all of Virginia uh, eventually. And, and one of the marks of being Virginian is to eat Virginian ham, uh, to drink persimmons beer. And, and, and so you, you see these things that sort of probably what happened was that uh, natives and Africans living together saw that that connection and and said, "Hey, we used to use this in a different way and and, and turned it into a beer and everybody liked it and uh, that became something that people did and eventually the 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 whites will learn from that. It seems to me that it's slower for the English to learn directly from the natives. Uh, a good example being the processing of hominy. Hominy in the 18th century has a couple of definitions, but we know it in, in today's small hominy as grits. Oh, you right. probably don't get a lot of grits in England, but yeah, I've uh, heard of it. They're a wonderful American dish, uh, often consumed as breakfast. Uh, there's also another version of hard hominy, what they call large hominy, which is done by taking the corn and soaking it in in lye water which causes it to puff up and turn very white and very puffy. And then that's used as an ingredient in stews and soups and porridges and things such as that. Uh, that process is an ancient process natives have been employing forever. In fact, it's really the only way you can survive on a diet of corn because it breaks down the nice and thin and allows your body to absorb it, uh, the minerals and things from the corn that uh, if you just ate the corn unprocessed, you can end up with pellagra, a vitamin deficiency disease. Uh, and so uh, the natives had discovered this somehow or another, the other thing it helps is to mix it with beans, one of the three sisters, as the natives called, uh, the three primary bases of their diet, uh, corn uh, and, and beans. Uh, and, and so those are going to be um, 
you know, worked together, but you don't see white Virginians doing that process of soaking lye in the corn until after the revolution and into the 19th century. Uh, and certainly, you know, we've been in Virginia since 1607. Uh, somebody must have learned about it along the way, but it doesn't become something that everybody does and accepts until much later. I was only going to ask if there was any sort of intercommunication pollination between the different colonies themselves. Is there a difference to cuisine in Virginia than there is in Pennsylvania or, or you know, or, or the other you know, colonies? By 1820, absolutely. By 1820, we can, I can think of at least six different distinct American food cultures. New England, uh, more of a corn and wheat base. Uh, Virginia, the Chesapeake, including Maryland as well. Uh, their diet, the Virginia ham, the seafood from the bay, uh, the corn, uh, the, the, the African influences and, and tomatoes and other things that are coming into that Virginia diet early on. The South Carolina diet, uh, which is a rice-based cuisine, also very heavily African influenced uh, in, in that culture. Uh, the New Orleans cuisine, which is developing in this time period as well. So by 1820, there are a number of distinct cuisines in America. Uh, and, and yeah, there's going to be some going back and forth, but, you know, uh, the South isn't as anxious to share and learn northern things as as uh, northerners might be to learn southern <laughs> things you know so that there, there's going to be cultural differences that are going to slow that process down some uh but um yeah you it, you really see that period from the revolution until about 1820 uh is that period of development of these individualized cuisines within America. It's a really accelerated curve because you tend to think of, I mean, I think this is partly the fault of sort of American pop culture being so powerful, but when it comes to historical American food, I mean, partly it's, I'm sure, European snobbery, but we don't tend to think of it anything other than the past sort of 30 or 40 years and the kind of big wave of, of, of much more recent convenience foods which hit over here. But what you're talking about here is an incredibly accelerated melting pot of different cultures and cuisines in a way that probably happened in Europe over a much longer period. And this African influence, which I would never even considered having such an impact upon the very origins of the kind of food trends that spread across the country. And, and you know, it, it, it's all very subtle in some ways. That, that's one of the things about this is, is, is it isn't a, uh, an effort to go, oh, I'd like to know how the Africans cook. Uh, you know, th that was not the English viewpoint in this time period. I, I have to say, you know, they were viewing themselves as the, the height of reason. You know, what could we possibly learn from these people uh, was kind of the attitude. And so I don't think they actively went out to, uh, to, to find these things, but they make their way in one way or another. And, and there were certainly some who mm -hmm. did, but, but as a culture, that was not the trend. Uh, but, but because of the exposure and, and the, uh, the working together and the living together of all these cultures, uh, it, it all melts together. And, and yeah, before American food becomes homogenized into the fast food uh, nightmare that it becomes in the 50s and, and, and on up to today, uh, it, it really is a very unique food cultures throughout this country. Uh, and, and you see, you know, little regional specialties that, that are probably many cases sort of dying out now um, uh, were, were, you know, very 
prevalent in each culture of food. So earlier you were talking about the, the sort of influx of, of British published cookbooks and, and them being a, a source of inspiration. When does when does the sort of American food literature begin to appear? As the... Not until the very end. The, the first American cookbook is generally recognized as The Frugal American Housewife by Amelia Simmons. And its publishing <laughs> date is 1797. Uh, so it's not until the very end of the 18th century that America even writes a cookbook. The first. And what a title as well. What yes. a title for a cookbook. The Frugal American Housewife. I mean, wow. Yeah. There's aspirational view, isn't it? it, it it's, <laughs> and it's telling you exactly what you're going to get in that book is how to save money and, and be be economical, you know. Uh, and, and that was one of the complaints, frankly, Americans and, and English, uh, especially the middling and, and poor sorts of England in the 18th century, had about French food. It's too extravagant. It's too expensive. It's too ridiculous. Hannah glass says it best in the introduction to her cookbook uh which was a huge seller here in virginia by the way uh and and that one she says uh, you can tell the french chef a mile away they use a pound of butter to fry 12 eggs everybody knows it only takes a half a pound uh so, <laughs> so true. you, you want a, a a frugal uh englishman to prepare this french cuisine so they won't waste your money like a french chef would uh americans took that <laughs> a, a, another step further uh and and became even more frugal than, than even uh hannah could imagine in, in england i was just going to ask that let's let's take with the stroll i don't know metaphorically or, or re- up the hill to the to the governor's house and while this culture is growing amongst the streets of people, of you know, is he still having fancy French celebratory banquets for all his important chums? Does it, does, how, anyway, uh, give us a I paint a picture of what, what what's going on at one of these dinners, and and what time period does it does it keep going until? Well, dinner in the 18th century starts at two in the afternoon. Uh, that's fairly standard time for, for Virginia, about 1770 period, uh, is two o'clock dinner. Uh, you'll start with your, your first course. We're doing the English or French service here rather than the Russian. So the food is all out on the table in plates. And then whatever dish you sat in front of, you were in charge of carving and serving for your fellow guests. Nice. What you would do is pass your plate, not the dish. The dishes never move. So let's say I'm sitting in front of the Virginia ham. I will carve a piece off of the Virginia ham. I'll put it on my plate. I'll pass my plate to my neighbor on the left. They will put whatever dish is in front of them, a piece of that onto my plate, and then pass my plate to their neighbor. And their neighbor will put something else on my plate. And, and when, when everybody gets their plate back again, we eat. Uh, How civilized. That's lovely. What a lovely idea. Not great for COVID, but lovely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess also if there's a hundred people at the table, Jay. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be waiting a while. Very hungry by it, but yeah. Yeah, and, and everybody gets to see whether or not you know how to fillet a fish and carve a Virginia ham, and uh, or whether you're choking the governor on fish bones. You know, so uh, all, all these sorts of things. You know, you have to be. You're being judged the entire time, mind you. Oh uh, God, it's all and, etiquette, right? It's still all etiquette showing off. Oh, do you absolutely. know? Mr. Washington, General Washington writes a book of 50 rules of etiquette that every young man should learn. Uh, so, yes, and, and many of them are, are at the dinner table. Uh, and, and so after you've gone through your course and everybody's had what they want of those first course dishes, those dishes are all removed. 
Uh, generally, the party gets up, moves around, walks around a little bit, uh, visits the, the necessary, what have you. And then uh, while that's going on, the, the new second course dishes are placed on the table. Everybody comes back, repeats the process again, carves and serves, passes their plates, eats their food till they've eaten what they want of the second course. Uh, then those dishes are removed, the tablecloths are removed, and the very light deserting items come out. Uh, these consist of things like syllabub. I don't know if you still have syllabub in England much, but it's it's a wonderful mixture of cream, lemon juice, and white wine whipped together uh, that uh, separates out. You get a foam that you eat on the top with a spoon and a white wine punch below. You have candied nuts and jams and jellies and uh, little fruits and, and very light things to clear the palate as you dessert the table at the end of the meal, coming from the French mm. verb desalver to cure away or leave. So deserting items are the very light things at the end. By this time, it's probably 4 or 4.30, uh, depending on how good you are at conversation. And the gentlemen will retire to the, will remain in the dining room. The ladies will retire to the parlor. The parlor, they will have tea. This is before Queen Victoria's tea with the crumpets and all that. And you've just eaten dinner, so there's no food served with tea. It's just simply a chance for the ladies to gossip about the men uh, and the men to shuggle down some punch. Uh, because that's what they'll start to do while the ladies are in the parlor. They're going to start by toasting. We'll, of course, start with the king and work our way down the local magistrate's dog. And by the time the ladies get back, uh, we'll have fathomed a number of bowls of punch and we'll be ready to start the evening activities, maybe five or six in the evening at this point. Uh, start playing cards, dancing. Virginians love to dance. They love to gamble. Uh, those kinds of things, playing music. Uh, so you begin all those evening activities and if you're the royal governor you, you can go till two in the morning uh with all that sort of thing so uh that's you partied hard i tell you what well, you party yeah. i hope you're keeping that tradition going though well, you are in a historical town yeah. i hope you do that all the time well we've, we've had some pretty rowdy <laughs> nights at the tavern uh local tavern that does its uh the gambles in the evening uh chowning's tavern uh, we, we do have some good times there so Indeed. So just to, just just to, to go back to the Colonial Williamsburg itself, each of these buildings is alive. Is that is that what we're painting here? So we've talked you know a lot about the food culture of the whole town and the area and everything. But when we go back to Colonial Williamsburg itself, the whole culture is vibrant on, in the museum. Is it? Is that so? There is. All sorts of activities going all over. All That's over. correct. There are well over 400 uh, interpreters in costume in the historic area uh, that are there, uh, not only giving tours of buildings, but demonstrating all about 18 different trades, including the foods that we do, uh, but metalworking, gunsmithing, blacksmithing, uh, leatherworking, woodworking, um, gardening, uh, farming, uh, all these various 18th century skills are, are being preserved by uh, my fellow tradesmen uh, here at Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, then we have um, a wonderful collection of, at, at the Wallace Gallery and Museum, which is more of what we would think of as a traditional museum, all the antiques on display and uh, that sort of situation. Uh, and then there's uh, various, you know, we rely a lot on school groups who will come uh, for, for visits and uh, mm -hmm. uh, we'll uh, have various activities for the kids to do while they're here on their school tours and uh, things such as that. So yeah, it's, it's a very vibrant place and, it, and it's always 
something going on. And, and really, I, I think it takes about two to three days to fully visit all of Colonial Williamsburg. You don't uh, mess about, do you, over there? 400 reenactors. This is, I mean, the scale can is... Can you stay? Sorry, Frank. Can, can you stay in... The, if, I, if, if Jay and I popped over in our little Winnebago... <laughs> Can we stay in Colonial Williamsburg, or do we stay outside and travel into Colonial Actually, there are some uh, houses that you can rent right within the historic area. Uh, that That's are, so uh, right cool. I'm lot. getting so slight Westworld vibes, though. Right there and walk out on Slightly. the street and, and go next door and see me cooking. <laughs> and do you sell the food you're cooking? Do people get to now, try the food you're cooking? That we can't do. Unfortunately, there's a, there's something, a modern nuisance called a public health department. Uh, and <laughs> they, they generally frown upon our activities. Uh, we don't have any running water. We don't have any stainless steel. Uh, we've been wearing masks recently, but uh, no head uh, cover. Rings, uh, that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, they tell us we can't serve food to the public, but uh, oh, we do get to taste. But you get it. to have it. Uh, yeah, you get to try it. Uh, I, I've learned my lesson. I, I, I I'm very uh, good at, at resisting the temptation. After 28 years of cooking, uh, I, I still find myself breaking down every now and then. But uh, I've learned to skip <laughs> a lot of it because none of this is health food. You know, butter, lard, <laughs> cream, eggs, you know, alcohol, you know, you, you can hear the gout waiting in the corner uh, and, and it's uh, coming for you soon. What a place as well, James. My word, this sounds incredible. Well, I don't think I'd, I've been racking my brains for something even vaguely equivalent in the UK. And I just can't think of, I mean, but, but, not on that scale. For some, not close. No, not at all. And I was I was mentioning there's a, there's a place not far from where I live, which is a, like an open air museum, but it's not alive. I mean, it can be and it's, you know, but it doesn't live and breathe every day. And I've been to, there's a working sort of um, in Colebrookdale, a kind of, um, What's a, a weld? Is there a, yeah, what, like, what are they called? The weld something or other museum? There's a bots weld or something like that. Uh, I went to one possibly, in England years ago. That was a sort of a similar idea. But. And, they, you know, and they might be one element of what you're talking about. They might focus on metalwork or woodwork or crafting or something, but they won't. It, you know, in my in my mind, you're right. It's a, it's it's got a kind of Westworld feeling about it, where you feel you'll suddenly be so discombobulated that you just don't, you know. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm imagining. It just sounds remarkable, and and for th- to think that food is a really important, vibrant part of that that offering and that community is is really good to understand because it's 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 you know it's just been a fascinating listen to Frank today. Yeah, absolutely remarkable. Um, Frank, I'm afraid we have just like in a puff of smoke run out of time on the podcast this week. But um, please come back, Frank. Yeah, please happy come, to back. come back. Uh, I haven't even talked about your work in the kitchens, but just this idea of American food culture is something that we completely gloss over over here. Certainly the the older and I, I as James said knew nothing about this the origins the disparate moments the the bits where it you know disseminates from european food it yeah what an incredible experience in this thank you ever so much no, and, and for me it's it's because for our perspective as as brits over here we get taught history from a very british gaze and and that period of of, of time that you're talking about is for me it's elizabeth the first it's the spanish armada uh, then it's james the first of, of scotland of, of whatever six of whatever of scotland of and first of england's gunpowder plot we don't talk about food right? <laughs> we don't put food in this perspective you know and and there's no food culture in britain at this point we're, we're literally importing carrots and potatoes and things are marveling at their power and, and and value but we're not we're not there's no discussion ever at school or any point i think about people living and breathing and having a community if it doesn't feel that's what my point early on to you that this was in, in i imagine for the for the people coming from england and, and britain 
this was a it was a, a better world, right? Because we didn't have, I don't think, a, such a an equal feeling, you know, access to these things. Abundance. You know, people didn't have gardens. We're, gardens. Absolutely, you know, we're we're a know. much more classless uh, society here. Eventually, uh, to some degree, uh, and and that starts to show up early on. But I think it also. The English that come to Virginia are very impressed by the, the, the just the vast open nature of the place, uh, and and you know there just aren't stretches even in England in the 18th century of forest like there there are in Virginia, and and the uh, the the feeling of of the wilderness that they got was was a big uh, draw mm. I think for 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 some of the English, especially those crowded in the slums of London in the 18th century. Uh, but where I'd say where did the first settlers to Virginia sort of come from do you know it which parts of England because I know different parts of Britain tended to head to different you know set up a colony of their own so where, where well, were they the, from the very first boat uh, the very first boat that arrives in Jamestown pretty much are all gentlemen uh, which was a big problem because gentlemen don't work with their hands. So they, they don't go out and plant fields. <laughs> don't do anything. Uh, and that became a very <laughs> difficult today. problem for them as as time went on in that first year or two because uh, they had to figure out a way to get all these gentlemen to actually work uh, because they weren't used to, to such things. Uh, but, um, yeah, so a lot of these, were, they were all investors in the Virginia company. We started as a, as a, uh, a company. And um, they were, you know, Englishmen from, from basically all over uh, uh, the, the royal governors are, are coming over from England as well they're often English noblemen or, or miners what happened early on is you get appointed governor and you don't want to go to a backwater town of 1200 people like Williamsburg uh, you know you're going to stay in London where the action is so you appoint a lieutenant governor and it's the lieutenant governor who gets stuck going to Virginia. Uh, and about 1750 or so, Parliament realized there wasn't a single governor in any of the colonies that they were supposed to be governing. And so they passed a law saying, if you're appointed governor, you've actually got to go there. Uh, and so that results in, in the fact that we get much better people coming from much better class of governors uh, coming to Virginia for the last two royal governors, Lord Dunmore and Lord Botetot. Botetot uh, is, is an Englishman, uh, owns uh, some minor in Cornwall area. Uh, Badminton was uh, one of his estate actually uh, early on was connected uh, to that. And then uh, Lord Dunmore was a Scot uh, and he came over with the French cook from uh, that he uh, brought from uh, the New World and, and uh, or from France and uh, came here to the New World. He was governor of, of New York and uh, the governor of Virginia dies, Botetot dies and, and the king moves Dunmore down here. He was not happy about the move uh, and that kind of set off a series of bad relationships ever after with the Virginians until finally in let's see June of 1774 Lord Dunmore sneaks out of town in the middle of the night uh, and abandons his post uh, to the to the rebels uh, as we become I blame the French chef yeah I think it was probably... <laughs> interesting story about the French chef I just got to say the only reason we know uh, that he was there was that there's a letter from apparently his wife to uh, the governor saying, have you seen my husband? I have not heard from him in a couple of years and I believe he is, was lately in your employ. Wow. Uh, wow. Apparently the cook decided <laughs> not to tell his family that the governor was moving to Virginia. <laughs> Oh Frank, what a, wow! There we are. There, there's a thought to finish on. Frank, where can where can people find you and Colonial Williamsburg online on social media and things? Uh, ColonialWilliamsburg.com. 
And in fact, we have on, on if you type in recipes, when you get to the search engine of that, uh, you can find our blog on food. We have at least 20 recipes up there. We have the original 18th century recipe as it was written. And then we have a modern translation for you to cook at home. Uh, so if you want to try the taste of England via America 200 years ago, uh, go right to the website and dig up some of the wonderful recipes on there. There's some really good, uh, good recipes on there, actually. James, literally, James's face just lit up. I'm, I'm literally on it now. <laughs> I'm, on it. I'm Googling. Okay. I'm in. Fra Frank, <laughs> thank you so much. Sorted. What a pleasure speaking to me. Really appreciate this trip over to America. Uh, thank you ever so much. What a delight. And James, thank you. That was fun, wasn't it? Oh, brilliant. Another another cracker. Speak to you Lovely. very soon. Thank you, Frank. It's been a, yeah, been a joy. It was a pleasure. I will I'll talk to you again soon.